Live from historic downtown Carlisle, Pennsylvania, home of founding father James Wilson, 19th century hymn writer George Duffield, 19th century gospel minister George Norcross, and sports legend Jim Thorpe. It's Iron Sharpens Iron. This is a radio platform in which pastors, Christian scholars, and theologians address the burning issues facing the church and the world today. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 17 tells us iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Matthew Henry said that in this passage, we are cautioned to take heed with whom we converse and directed to have in view in conversation to make one another wiser and better. It is our hope that this goal will be accomplished over the next two hours, and we hope to hear from you, the listener, with your own questions. And now here's your host, Chris Arnzen. Good afternoon, Cumberland County, Pennsylvania, Lake City, Florida, and the rest of humanity living on the planet Earth who are listening via live streaming at ironsharpensironradio.com. This is Chris Arnson, your host of Iron Sharpens Iron Radio, wishing you all a happy Friday on this ninth day of February 2024. And first of all, I want to give a hearty shout-out to Free Presbyterian Radio Liberia, an education station in West Africa and a conservative Christian voice and this is uh, Liberia, West Africa, a radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Mission in Liberia. And they have picked up the best of Iron Sharpens Iron Radio, which they air every Monday at midnight. So I want to thank the folks at Free Presbyterian Radio Liberia for letting me know that exciting news. And that's only going to uh, enhance and expand our, our listening audience, I'm sure. And I hope that those of you who are listening on Free Presbyterian Radio Liberia will also uh, listen uh, off of ironsharpensironradio.com uh, Monday through Friday, all five days of the week, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, broadcasting out of the U.S. So you'll hear a lot more guests and topics that way as well. But I'm thrilled to have back on the program a recurring guest. In fact, he's become a regularly featured guest now on Iron Sharp and Zion Radio, and I am thrilled about that. Uh, and by now, his name will be immediately recognizable to the vast majority of you listening. David Reese is my guest today, pastor of Puritan Reformed Church of Phoenix, Arizona, and CEO of ArmoredRepublic.com. Today we're going to be addressing the necessity of covenant theology. It's my honor and privilege to welcome you back to Iron Sharp and Zion Radio, Pastor David Reese. Brother, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to help uh, to talk about uh, covenant theology. I think it'll be really helpful for those who are even already familiar or if they're not familiar with understanding an outline of the Bible and how the pieces of the Bible work together. Amen. And first of all, as we always do, because there are people who may be tuning in to this program for the first time in their lives, or they may be hearing you as a guest for the first time, and they're not familiar with Puritan Reformed Church of Phoenix, Arizona. So let us, listeners know about that. Yeah, so Puritan Reformed Church is a church that's reformed in doctrine. We're concerned to see the doctrine, worship, and government of the church align with the teachings of Scripture alone. And we 
uh, have found, we believe, you know, the scriptures teach that we are to sing psalms. And so God has given us a, a book of hymns in the middle of the Bible. And many times people are deeply edified by having the joy and the experience of, of singing those songs back to God. Um, and so we are a psalm singing church. And I think a lot of people would be edified by uh, getting to do that. Many churches don't even include psalms at all. Um, and in, in their in their sung worship, uh, we exclusively sing psalms. And so I'd really encourage anybody who's in the Phoenix area, whether visiting or living there, to come check out uh, what it is like to sing the psalms back to God um, and the joy of being able to hear that because there's not a loud, uh, a loud sound around that prevents people from being able to hear. Instead, you can be edified by the words of your brethren uh, singing the psalms back to God. And, and you, you sing them exclusively a cappella. We do, yes. So and we, we believe that musical instrumentation is a part of the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant, um, that it was instituted as a part of the worship of the temple system. Um, and so when you look at, if you look through the scriptures at all the uses of, of musical instrumentation in the worship of God, you'll find um, that for the public worship of God, uh, it was instituted as a part of the temple system. So it's similar to, uh, you know, the offering of incense or the sacrifice of animals or the wearing of, of some sort of, a, you know, a, a clerical garb um, or having a, a physical temple, right? And so those, those are all sort of a part of that ceremonial law. And so ho- hopefully the context of that will make more sense as we talk about covenant theology as well. But yeah, that's, 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 our, that's our practice and that's the theological reason for it. And it may uh, make some of you totally scratch your head because you've never heard of that before. What? They don't have musical instruments? Well, believe it or not, uh, I learned this from uh, John Price's book, Old Light on New Worship. The vast majority of Protestants did not begin including musical instrumentation in their worship services until the 19th century. It was only the Lutherans and uh, the Anglicans that had musical instrumentation. The rest of Protestantism did not. Charles Spurgeon did not have musical instruments uh, in his uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle. And uh, and many of your great heroes that you uphold uh, as your heroes of the faith, you might not even realize that they did not use musical instruments either so i just thought i'd throw that out there and if you want to find out more about john price's book i did a three-part interview with him and iron trip and zion radio just type in john price in the search engine of iron trip and zion radio.com uh also tell us please about armored republic uh our one of our latest advertisers here on iron trip and zion yeah, Armored Republic is a company that manufactures body armor and the other elements of kind of a kit, tactical kit that somebody would want to have to be able to defend themselves against tyrants and criminals. Our mission is to provide tools of liberty to free men to resist tyrants and criminals to defend their God-given rights to the honor of Jesus Christ. And so we view body armor as a tool of liberty. And when we think about that, you know, body armor, stuff that you might want to have on a regular basis, you know, if you're a person who thinks about self-defense and being prepared, you probably carry already a pistol on your person on a regular basis. Um, and in addition to that, I encourage you to think about the idea that it's very convenient and easy to have a soft armor panel in a bag or to have a backpack with one built in. Um, and 95% of gun crimes are committed with you know, those small guns with handguns. I mean, people people talk about the the big, scary you know guns, but the reality is that that's not what's generally used in crimes 
And those guns um, are just like body armor. If you think about body armor that stops rifle rounds, uh, those those rifles are are tools of liberty. And if you want to be an infantryman who's capable of rallying around lawful governors in the event of the need to resist tyrants, either through invasion or through jackboots taking control and using some sort of a oppressive power to require us to do evil or forbid us from doing a duty, then I would encourage you to have a rifle and to have body armor so that you could rally around godly magistrates. Um, and that's what the rifle rated armor that we have and make available is for. And our goal is to make that affordable and make it durable and to have it be good quality. It's also useful for training um, and uh, being able to go to the gun range and, and know that you have something that would help to preserve life. Yes. And uh, the website for that fine organization is armoredrepublic.com, armoredrepublic.com. And you'll be hearing the ad uh, for that program uh, shortly in this program. Uh, well, I remember years ago, uh, perhaps it was even early on after I began broadcasting Iron Sharpens Iron Radio, I was getting complaints from people who were saying, you know, you're using these terms and words and phrases that we don't even know what you're talking about. And I was taking for granted that most people listening would understand the the words and phrases and terms that reform people regularly use, but those outside of our camp, as it were, they may be totally unfamiliar with it. And so, therefore, I, I actually took heed to what they were saying, these listeners, and began trying to conduct programs with the mindset, you never know who's listening, there may be a lot of New Christians who are not even a part of a Reformed church. And so you, you, we have to be careful not to just assume that they understand uh, what we're talking about. So I think it would be very important for you to start with a definition of covenant theology. And not even all people who believe in covenant theology are exactly identical. Obviously, you and I are different in that you are a Presbyterian and I'm a Reformed Baptist, and yet we both believe in covenant theology, but uh, if you could give us a working definition to start with. Absolutely. So, so first, you know, if we break down the term itself, right, covenant is a word that means, you know, covenant is a, is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That, that, that definition comes from O. Palmer Robertson, and he has a fantastic book called Christ of the Covenants. Um, and so in that, this idea of a covenant is, is a bond, which means it's established by swearing, it's established by an oath. Right, and an oath, when it's a promissory oath, is something where there's a promise to do something, and there's also calling upon God as witness to bless the fulfilling or to curse the breaking of that oath. And so the idea that God himself covenants with man, he swears. And when he swears, he swears by his own name. He swears by himself. Every, when he makes promises, you know, there's nothing higher for him to call upon. And so he calls upon his own name. And so his word is unbreakable and his swearing by his own name is unbreakable. And so covenant theology is, is seeing that God's promises give us an organizing structure for seeing how the Bible fits together. Now, in addition to that, we think about the word theology and theology is the study of God, right? So we're looking at, we're studying God, you know, theos and logos, those two Greek words, jammed together, they get the word theology. Theos is God, and logos is study or doctrine or reason. So we have the, the doctrine of God. 
And so this idea that, that we're, we're studying God and we're understanding what he has, what promises he has given. And so when we think about the structure of, of the Bible, we, 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 on a very basic level, we talk about the idea that there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And those word, that word testament is actually a translation of the word in Hebrew, berit, or in Greek, diatheke. And those two words are normally translated covenant. So we talk about the idea of the, the old covenant and the new covenant. And so when we're thinking about the Bible itself, the way we even refer to it is governed by this basic breakdown of the old covenant and the new covenant. So I want to help people to have that in mind, that this, that the, the very basic structure of the Bible itself is built around our understanding that covenants are key to understanding what, what God is doing and what his promises are. Now, when we, when we think about covenant theology, the, the Reformed have historically talked about three main covenants in terms of understanding the structure of the Bible. And I won't have time to go through uh, some of the detail on what we're going to call the covenant of grace. What I want to give right now, uh, before we go into the next segment, is to talk about these three main pieces of, of, that, of that structure. And then hopefully uh, in the next part, we can talk about the, the outline of how that breaks down in history. But the, the three covenants are, the first one is the covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, in a lot of Puritan writings and Reformed writings, what you'll find is that this covenant is sometimes called the covenant of redemption. Sometimes you'll hear the covenant of creation, um, but the technical name that you'll often also run into is called the intra-Trinitarian covenant. And the idea is that it's a covenant between the members of the Trinity, right? It's not inter-Trinitarian. There's not like different Trinities that you're going between. It's intra-Trinitarian, right? So this is the covenant inside of the Trinity. And so this is a covenant between the members of the Trinity. And God the Father makes promises to God the Son. And God the Son makes promises back to him. And then God the Father makes sons to the, makes promises to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit promises things to the Father. And then the Son promises to the Spirit, and the Spirit promises to the Son. So these promises between the members of the Trinity, the promises ultimately come into this idea that they are they are agreeing to fulfill particular roles and to glorify each other in creation and in redemption in history. And so they each agree to fulfill roles, and those roles of distinctive place is why they one submits to the other, for example. So the Father and the Son, and the Spirit are equal in their substance. They're equally God. The Father's God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God. Their agreement with each other is the basis for their difference of roles. And so those difference of roles and how they fulfill different roles is most obvious, for example, in the fact that God the Son is the one who became incarnate and who died for our sins. The Father did not become incarnate. The Father did not die for our sins. He did not suffer on the cross. The Son is the one that does that. The Holy Spirit also didn't. And so even though the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in our salvation in different ways, they have different roles there. And so the incarnation is an easy way of seeing how there's that distinctiveness. And so the different roles of the members of the Trinity, again, is established in this agreement, in this covenant between each other. 
Now, in history, you end up with these two major covenants that are going to govern how we see the history in the Bible itself. And so when we look at, when we chase these down a little bit more, we're going to be chasing down really the detail of, again, what's called the covenant of grace. So the, the first covenant that occurs is called the covenant of works. And the covenant of works occurs in Genesis chapters one and two, and then God gives curse for the breaking of it in Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter three, we also find God giving a promise, which is the first giving of the covenant of grace there in chapter three. So we'll talk about that. But the covenant of works is a covenant between God and Adam. And in this covenant, God tells Adam to subdue the earth, to fill the earth, to multiply. So we get what's called the dominion mandate there. We also have in the establishment of, of this covenant, we have the giving of the institution of marriage and having children, for example, as well. But the thing that happens in the giving of this covenant, the most distinctive element is the fact that God says, if you break this covenant, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day you eat thereof, dying you shall die. And so what we have is the grant of this curse, a threat of a curse for breaking the covenant. And we also have the tree of life there, which is given as an emblem or symbol of the promise of life for obedience in the covenant. So the covenant of works is a covenant where Adam is required to obey God. And if he fulfills the requirements of this covenant, will be rewarded with life. Now, Adam doesn't just act on his own. Adam represents people. And one of the interesting things about covenants is we find that there's a system of representation that is developed in covenants. And that's one of the reasons why it's important to recognize that marriage, for example, was instituted back in the covenant of works even because Adam represented his wife, but he also represented all those who would descend from him by ordinary generation. In other words, the children that they'd have by ordinary marital relations are people that Adam represented in his actions. And so we find that, for example, in Romans chapter 5, this idea that Adam represents humanity and his actions are on our behalf. So he represents all his posterity, all of his descendants by ordinary generation. And Adam owes God perfect obedience and he and his posterity would be rewarded with life but in breaking this covenant, in disobeying, there is death on the basis of his disobedience. And so that death is a death that is both a legal dying in the covenant, um, and also there's a spiritual death in terms of the idea of unbelief, but there's a physical death that comes. And what we find is that God has designed man in this structure, in terms of the covenant of works, to make it so that there's a way where physical death can be used for salvation. Now, this covenant of works is something that also you find a similar structure in terms of how God deals with the angels. And the way God dealt with the angels was he judged each of them individually. Rather than having one angel represent the whole, he has each of them individually. And those angels that sin, that fall, would be cursed for their disobedience. And those angels that obeyed, would be rewarded for their obedience and be blessed. And so you have the righteous angels, the elect angels, and you have 
the wicked angels, those that are reprobate angels. And Satan is an example, the most famous example of one of those demons, one of those fallen angels. So each of them individually is under a covenant of works and they are rewarded for their good works or punished for their evil works. And so man is under Adam in that same condition, but all of man is fallen because Adam represents the whole race. And so everybody's guilty by the sin of Adam. In addition to that, everybody who descends from Adam by ordinary generation also receives a corrupted nature, whereby at the very moment of conception, rather than having spiritual life, we have spiritual death. We don't glorify God as we ought. We do not believe the truth. And as a result, we commit particular sins. We commit particular transgressions of the law. And so in Genesis 3, what's given is what's called the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is a promise relating to a second Adam, the seed of the woman that would come, and he would defeat Satan. So even though Satan came, deceived Eve, and then, and then Adam follows Eve into sin, now there's this promise about a child who would come through Eve, through the woman, and as a result, this child would crush the head of the serpent. But there's also, we're told, and this is Genesis 3.15, we're told that, that, he, that, that Adam, sorry, that, this, that the seed of the woman, that this, the Christ, his, bru- his heel would be crushed, his heel would be bruised, so he's going to crush or bruise the head of the serpent and his heel will be crushed. And this points to the idea that he will die in the process of defeating Satan. So this is the giving of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is a covenant between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here Christ is the second Adam and he represents all the elect. And Christ will glorify the Father by taking to himself a human nature and submitting perfectly to the Father under the law in order to redeem the elect. And this is, he fulfills the law, he does the positive duties that Adam failed to do, and he also dies to make payment. Now, Christ, when he dies, he has a legal right to his life because he was perfectly obedient, he's owed life, and so he's able to offer his life as payment. Furthermore, in his, he did not have spiritual death. He glorified God, believed all the truth, and did all the particular duties. And so he had spiritual life. And so his physical death is something where his spirit is separated from his body and he undergoes the curse of God on the cross. And in suffering the curse and undergoing physical death, he never enters a point where he is disbelieving or not glorifying God. And so he is able to offer himself for full satisfaction to make payment for guilt. And he's able as a representative, having fulfilled the whole law to give his righteousness imputed to those he represents. So the guilt of Adam is imputed to those he represents, but the righteousness of Christ and the satisfaction of the debt that Christ fulfills, those things are imputed to the elect. And so what we find is the covenant of grace gives us a structure to understand the legal workings of the gospel. And it shows us how there is a way that we are saved so that God is both just and at the same time is the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. And so God's forgiveness is not just an arbitrary forgiveness without regard to law, but it's a just mercy. And so these covenant structures help us to understand that. And so what I'm looking forward to discuss soon here is to then be able to go into the covenant of grace in terms of how the old covenant and new covenant work in relationship to that covenant of grace. And we'll uh, jump right into that when we return from our first commercial break. If you have a question for David Reese, we're, we're going to hold off reading those questions until our final segment. But I would advise you 
uh, to send in a question as soon as possible because you never know how long that line of listeners may be with questions. So you, if you want to make sure your question is included, send it to chrisarnzen at gmail.com as soon as possible. That's C-H-R-I-S-A-R-N-Z-E-N at gmail.com. Give us your first name at least, city and state and country of residence. Don't go away. We'll be right back with David Reese. Armored Republic exists to equip free men with tools of liberty to defend God-given rights against the twin threats of tyranny and chaos. If you own a rifle to resist tyrants and criminals, then you should own body armor and a med kit for the same reasons. A rifle stops evil, body armor and a med kit keep you in the fight and preserve your life. Armored Republic is a body of free craftsmen united to create tools of liberty. We are honored to be your armorsmith of choice. Civilian ownership of body armor is about increasing decentralized power and by comparison, reducing the advantages of centralized power. The danger of centralized power is often represented by the word king. As Americans, we hate the word king, applied to any mere man. We are armored republic, and in a republic, there is no king but Christ. Arm yourself with tools of liberty at armoredrepublic.com. Pastor Keith Allen of Lindbrook Baptist Church, a Christ-centered, gospel-driven church looking to spread the gospel in the southwest portion of Long Island, New York, and play our role in fulfilling the Great Commission, supporting and sending for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're delighted to be a part of Chris Arnzen's Iron Sharpens Iron Radio advertising family. At Lindbrook Baptist Church, we believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the inspired word of God inerrant in the original writings, complete as the revelation of God's will for salvation, and the supreme and final authority in all matters to which they speak. We believe in salvation by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. This salvation is based upon the sovereign grace of God, was purchased by Christ on the cross, and is received through faith alone, apart from any human merit, works, or ritual. Salvation in Christ also results in righteous living, good works, and appropriate respect and concern for all who bear God's image. If you live near Lindbrook, Long Island, or if you're just passing through on the Lord's Day, we'd love to have you come and join us in worship. For details, visit lindbrookbaptist.org. That's L-Y-N-Brookbaptist.org. This is Pastor Keith Allen of Lindbrook Baptist Church reminding you that by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Lord bless you in the knowledge of himself. Hi, I'm Brian McLaughlin, president of the SecureCom Group, and an enthusiastic supporter of Chris Arnzen's Iron Sharpens Iron radio program. The SecureCom Group provides the highest level of security, closed-circuit television, access control, and communication systems for Manhattan's top residential buildings, as well as churches, commercial properties, municipalities, and more. We custom install exactly what you need to protect yourself, including digital recording, off-site viewing, and connectivity from most smart devices. From simple code-activated systems to the latest technology using facial recognition, the SecureCom Group has it. 
We also provide the latest in intercom and IP telephone systems. In addition, we provide superior networking platforms. We'll create, maintain, and secure your local network. Whether it's a Wi-Fi or hardwire network, we'll implement the latest secured firewall, endpoint solutions, and cloud backup. I would love to have the honor and privilege of helping protect the lives and property of Iron Sharpens Iron radio listeners and their associates. For more details on how the SecureCom Group may be of service to you with the very latest in security innovations, call 718-353-3355. That's 718-353-3355. Or visit securecomgroup.com. That's securecomgroup.com. This is Brian McLaughlin of the SecureCom Group, joining Chris Arnzen's family of advertisers to keep Iron Sharpens Iron Radio on the air. We here at Iron Sharpens Iron Radio praise God for the generous monthly financial support of Royal Diadem Jewelers, educated by and affiliated with the American Gem Society, Jewelers of America, and the Gemological Institute of America. For the perfect custom-designed engagement ring or any one-of-a-kind piece of jewelry created exactly according to your imagination and specifications, Royal Diadem Jewelers has you covered. No matter where you live in the world, Royal Diadem will walk you step-by-step through every stage of the process and even hold a high-tech internet virtual visit using state-of-the-art jewelry design technology to serve you. They start by listening carefully to determine your needs. They're interested in making what you want, not what they want to sell you. From rough design to digital model, to photorealistic image, to wax prototype model, to the finished product, they're continually listening to your input, likes and dislikes, making any changes necessary along the way. This will ensure that your custom jewellery will turn out exactly as you dreamed and well beyond your expectations. Visit royaldiadem.com. That's royaldiadem.com today. Sterling Vanderwerker, owner of Royal Diadem Jewellers, his wife Bronnie, his business partner and manager Brian Wilson, and the entire family thank you all for listening to, praying for, and supporting the work of Iron Sharpens Iron Radio. And don't forget, folks, royaldiadem.com is still offering Iron Sharpens Iron Radio this mind-blowing opportunity. They are giving Iron Sharpens Iron Radio 100% of the profits from any sale of jewelry to an Iron Sharpens Iron Radio listener simply by that listener saying, I heard about RoyalDiadem.com on Iron Sharpens Iron Radio. And keep in mind, folks, they're giving us 100% of the profits from any sale of jewelry to one of our listeners on top of the monthly financial support that we already receive from RoyalDiadem.com. That shows you how much they love this program and believe in what we're doing. So if you are in the market to buy jewelry for yourself or someone you love, and remember Valentine's Day is coming up very soon. And by the way, you know something? You may not be aware of this. My birthday is Valentine's Day. And uh, if you are inclined to buy me a gift from RoyalDiadem.com, I would like uh, a solid gold microphone pendant for a necklace the size of my fist 
<laughs> Just kidding. Well, partially kidding. But whomever you are buying jewelry for, <clears throat> uh, including yourself, please go to royaldiadem.com soon to at least get the ball rolling on your purchase of jewelry because we have no idea when they're going to pull the plug on uh, this offer to us where we get 100% of the profits from any sale of jewelry. Go to royaldiadem.com today to at least get the ball rolling, and don't forget to mention Chris Arnson of Iron Trip and Zion Radio. Now we're back with David Reese, who is pastor of Puritan Reformed Church in Phoenix, Arizona. We are talking about the necessity of covenant theology, and you wanted to uh, give us now an outline, if you if you would. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. So, so as we talk about covenant theology, we've already talked about the definition of a covenant. We've talked about the covenant of works, covenant of and grace, and we talked about the the eternal covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, called the intra-trinitarian covenant, which is the plan of God to glorify Himself by glorifying the various members of the Trinity, glorifying each other. So, in the covenant of works, Adam represents the race of man, and we are all found guilty in him because he sinned. In the covenant of grace, Christ represents God's elect, and we are found innocent because of His death, providing a full satisfaction for our sins, and we're found to be righteous because of the perfect obedience of Christ, his fulfilling of the law in every detail, in our place, in our stead as a representative. And that's in the covenant structure of the covenant of grace. And so what we find is this is laid, this is given to us in the scriptures in a way where we find that this, this covenant of grace is introduced to us in Genesis 3, but it's built upon as we go through the scriptures. So, the covenant of works is given to us in Genesis 1 and 2, and the fall and the judgment of God in Genesis 3. But we also find, and remember in those chapters, the individual is given the dominion mandate to subdue the earth, and the household is also established with marriage and the idea of children and potentially servants who are hired uh, being under the authority of an employer. So you have this idea of the institution of the household there. And then in Genesis 3, you have the promise for forgiveness and the work of Christ, the promised seed of the woman, uh, that she would cross the head of the serpent. And so Adam, receiving the covenant of works, he then receives the covenant of grace. And what we find in Genesis 3, all the way through Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, is this focus on the church as a distinctive body from the world. Genesis 4 for example, gives to us the the murder of Abel by Cain um, and how that results in Cain being the first person who's excommunicated, but there's no state around to punish him. So God hasn't authorized man to, to punish with criminal penalties yet, and so there's no avenger, and therefore Cain is able to go out, and though he's he's separate, there's now a distinction between the church and the world, and as a result, the city of man, the world, continues to grow and grow and its wickedness fills the earth in such a way that it begins to destroy the church. So God raises up Noah and has him build an ark. And what we find is that what God does is from Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, all the way through chapter 9, is he brings a judgment to destroy the city of man and to preserve the church, to preserve his people that have a distinctive existence, the city of God. And what we find after the flood and after the destruction of the world 
is that man is still sinful, but God has promised not to destroy the world again in the same way, even though man continues to be sinful from his youth, even though his thoughts are only evil continually, uh, that he's going to still at the same time make it so that fallen men who are not regenerated, even though they are only thinking evil continually, um, that what's going to happen is God instead puts into place the institution of the state. So rather than having this grand judgment occur again, the state will be a tool to help to limit the wickedness of men by being able to have the authority of the sword to deal with the worst offenders. And so, you know, there's an interesting reality that you talk about, you know, the Pareto principle gets talked about a lot now that uh, 80% of effects come from 20% of causes. And so God instituting the state limits the great destructive power of men's evil by making it so that the worst offenders are likely the people who would commit the most crimes, be the be the worst, are going to be restrained by the state. But we also find that the state is no perfect defender of the church. And throughout history, we see over and over again a declining of, of societies into being you know wicked and being pagan. And so what we see with Noah is even though there's a gift of the state, that God has to come, and even though he recovenants with Noah, he adds things there. He has to come back and continue to give more. Now, he, he didn't forget this. He didn't, he didn't realize this wasn't going to happen. This is always God's plan. But history is a process of revealing more and more to show more and more about God um, and to display his glory in more and more clear and full ways. So Adam receives animal sacrifice, and he's given clothing to cover his shame. And we continue to see this animal sacrifice for example, with Cain and Abel, and uh, and Abel offering the sacrifice of blood, pointing forward, you know, this, the the idea of an animal being killed and the, and the blood being a part of that, the 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 animal's life is given as a representation, a symbol pointing forward to Christ, and that's a that's a type, that's a ceremonial law, that's a foreshadowing that points forward to Christ, and so what we have is there are two types of ceremonies that begin to be given in the covenant of grace, even going back to Adam, these ceremonies are things that are types and shadows pointing to Christ, like animal sacrifice. And then we have symbols that also have sort of moral duties represented in them. And so we find the ceremonial law is given to us as these symbols are 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 given to us to help us to think about our separateness, our moral duties, and also Christ as a representative. And so with Noah, what's given is not only the state to restrain evil, but in the covenant of grace being added onto, Noah is also given the ability now to eat animals. And so now the animal sacrifice has become a lot more fun because previously you could... (laughs) Before, you had to kill the animal and there was no ability to eat the, the, the meat. And now here all of a sudden the sacrifices become a feast. And so you think about the the types of sacrifices that are going to get instituted later on in the Mosaic Covenant, and you have the benefits of Christ are, are given to us and, and symbolized in these things. So the obvious thing with the death of an animal is pointed forward to is Christ dying to pay for our sins. But now also with the eating of the meat, we think about what's called the peace offering, or when you take, the, for example, the Lord's Supper now, you are thinking about the reality that you take Christ in and you're nourished by him. And so that symbolism gets added on. Now, we jump forward 
And what we find is, you know, after Noah, the, there's the, you know, there's the great human empire of, of the, with the Tower of Babel and, and all that. And God further separates humans with the, with the division of language and all that. But then you get to Genesis 12 and you have Abraham being called out. In Genesis 15, there's the giving of a third administration of the covenant of grace. And this idea, these changes, these administrations, sometimes people call them dispensations. And the difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology is this. Covenant theology looks at the dispensations or these changes in the covenant of grace as additive, so that's being built upon. And then furthermore, that what you have is sort of changes of the outward ceremonies, the rituals. And the dispensationalist would look at this as a change of the method of God interacting with man in a way where it sort of like ends the old one and adds a new one in its place. And so if you look at it that way, it's sort of like the Bible keeps having new covenants that annul the previous covenants. Well, the book of Galatians plainly teaches us that, for example, the Mosaic covenant coming later does not annul the Abrahamic covenant that was earlier. And so it's important for us to realize that as these things are given, they're additive, they build on, they do not replace and simply end, they, they build upon what has come before. But the changes of outward ceremonies are the things that we find there's sort of an ending of old ceremonies and a, a giving of new is what occurs in the new covenant. And so we're going we're gonna to see this, this changing of ceremonies is something that occurs throughout and gets capstoned for us in what we call the new covenant. So in, in Abraham, um, what we find in Genesis 15 is there's this giving of the covenant and there's additional promises given. But in Genesis 17, Abraham is given a symbol of the covenant. So Adam received animal sacrifice. Noah is then able to eat. And Adam also received, of course, the, the coverings of, of skin. So he's given clothing. But then Abraham is given this idea of the sign of circumcision to point forward to the seed, to the child that's promised to Christ. And so it's a symbol, it's a ritual symbol for entry into the covenant, and it points forward to Christ along with all these other promises there. And so it's the symbol of the covenant. And so we have two sacraments now that are in this covenant of grace. Since the, since the fall, we have the, the sacrifice of animals, and then we have circumcision as an entry, as an entry ritual. So, and, and Chris, I don't know how we are on, on time here before the next break. Needs to jump in. Uh, you've, but, got, you've got nearly 10 minutes. Okay, great. So Moses, we get to Moses, and what we have in Genesis, you obviously have this process of going from Abraham all the way into Jacob and his 12 tribes, um, you know, the, the 12 sons and the tribes that they represent. You go through all of that, and it's tracking for us the line of Christ getting there. And we get to Abraham was told that his descendants would be enslaved in Egypt. And so we get to that at the end of Genesis, and and in the beginning of Exodus, the first word in Exodus is and. And the reason it's and is because it's showing how it's connected to the book of Genesis, right? It's just, it's the Mosaic authorship continuing on. And so these two books are connected and, and, and it's the book of Exodus starts with and. and. And so when we get there, we're introduced to the people of God. They're, they're enslaved. Um, and and we, we find we're introduced to Moses who's raised up as a deliverer. And, you know, all this stuff happens, but, but we get ultimately to Moses being brought back to the people of Egypt. 
And in being brought back to the people in Egypt to try to pull them out, they go through the 10 plagues. And by the time we get to Exodus 12, we're on the 10th plague, which is, you know, the angel of death and the killing of the firstborn. And in that 12th chapter of Exodus, on the 10th plague, we are introduced to the Passover. And the Passover is a special ritual of sacrifice. And we all know that the Passover is ultimately what the Lord Jesus Christ transforms into the Lord's Supper. And so we have, we have now this sort of, we're, we're getting a more and more complex system of the animal sacrifices, and we have the idea of feast days. Now, I didn't mention feast days to begin with, but if you think back, Sabbath was given even back in the covenant of works, right? God worked six days to create, and then he gave the seventh day for rest. What we find in the old covenant is that God had that, you know, that day, that Sabbath that was one in seven, and that one in seven Sabbath was given, and then in the Mosaic time, he starts to add on more days. We get the Passover, we get the the Feast of, of Weeks, and we get the Feast of Tabernacles. We end up with Yom Kippur with the fast. We, we end up with the new moons. We, we have all these days that are added on. So there's a more complex set of days, and that's a part of the set of ceremonies. And in Exodus 12, you have that Passover feast and the sacrifice. You move forward into Exodus 16, and God is reminding people to keep the Sabbath. Exodus 20, you get to the Ten Commandments. And what you've got is sort of this laying out of the moral law. And we find the fourth commandment there right in the middle. And the fourth commandment is teaching us that there is holy time and there's regular time. We're called to work six days and rest one. And the Sabbath is sort of that emblem of the the ordering of time. And it has a ceremonial value. Now, in the new covenant, we have the Lord's Day. And it's the one in seven Sabbath, but it's on the first day of the week because we start from a position of rest, right? And Christ has already come. So but you see the building of these types and the shadows, all these things. The Passover points to Christ. The, the Pentecost points to Christ. The Feast of Weeks. The, the Trumpets points to Christ. Right? All, all this stuff is all pointing to Christ and his work. And so the Mosaic system, you end up with these four types of, of, of sacrifices. And these four types of sacrifices are given to us to point to different elements of what Christ is going to do. There's, there's the sin offering for the payment of sin. There's the burnt offering to focus on the idea that we're holy unto God. There's the, the, uh, the, the peace offering to focus on our fellowship and the enjoyment of peace and blessedness and fellowship. And the, then there's also the, the grain offering, which points forward to thanksgiving. And so these types of, of offerings there, the Mosaic Covenant explodes out the detail. It's kind of like you've seen those, those, you have like a diagram and it shows you some piece of machinery. And then there's like a 3D rendering where you can take all the pieces and it blows out and you see all the pieces and they're all labeled. And then you can kind of like, there's like an animation to pull it back together. That's the kind of thing that the Mosaic Covenant does. It provides this 3D chart blowout to help us to see all the stuff that Christ is doing. And so that, that's all pointing forward to him. And we get to the Davidic Covenant and there's this idea of establishment and kingship. And so that's way forward after the period of the judges, and we go through this period of time. I mean, so Moses is around, you know, uh, you know, 1480 and 1440 for the going in and, and dying, and you end up with 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 David around 1000. And so we're, we're looking at a period of over 400 years to get to David, and then his son Solomon, the building of the temple. And so that right there is in Second Samuel chapter seven. We're introduced to the Davidic covenant, and so all of these things are pointing forward to the new covenant which is a change. All these things, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, this is all the old covenant with all these types and shadows. 
and the new covenant is promised for the reality. And that's about Christ. And Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37 give to us this um, pointing to the new covenant. And the new covenant doesn't totally replace the old. It's the same covenant of grace, but it's a greater degree and it's a fulfillment. And so when we get to the covenant of grace, that's the new covenant, we have Christ and he gives us all these symbols that point backward and tell us, here's what's been done. And so we have the baptism and the Lord's Supper replace circumcision and replace Passover and all the sacrificial system, none of which paid for sin, but always pointed forward to the payment of sin. These things point back to what Christ has accomplished. And so the covenant of grace in the new covenant gives to us these symbols that we have going from a national church to an international church, from just Israel to all the nations. And so the visible church goes forward with these symbols that are portable. And these are the new ceremonies of the covenant of grace, the old ceremonies having been ended because they were fulfilled. Amen. Uh, Well, uh, we have time before we go to the break for one uh, listener question. And let's see, I was just looking at it. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, We have Jeremiah from Battle Creek, Nebraska. And Jeremiah says, I have met and heard Christians who make the claim that the covenant of works implies that people were saved in the old covenant initially by obedience to God. Is this not heresy? That is heresy. Um, the, the, the saints in the old covenant were not saved in the covenant of works. Um, what they were saved in was the covenant of grace. They believed in the Messiah to come. Just like Abraham, they were saved by grace alone through faith alone, believing in the Messiah to come. And so the, the, what we have is a covenant of grace that's looking forward to the Messiah. And the covenant of grace now in the new covenant era is looking back on what the Messiah has already done. And we still have things he's fulfilling, right? There's, there's still things that they have promised that are being fulfilled. And so um, that reality of the gospel going forth to the nations is still happening. The elect are being gathered. That's a part of what's foreshadowed in the idea of the, the Feast of the Trumpets, uh, this, this, this idea of the ingathering that's occurring. And so this process of pulling in the elect is a part of still a fulfillment of the work of Christ as he's redeeming saints out of the whole world uh, and bringing the nations to himself. Thank you, Jeremiah. And uh, we have time for another one. Uh, Ronald in eastern Suffolk County, Long Island, asks, can we rightly say that the old covenant was based on the physical nation of Israel and that is why a people could be removed from the covenant, whereas the new covenant is a spiritual covenant where which involves the circumcision of the heart. And if you are truly a part of Christ's covenant, you will never be removed from it. So there, there were externals in the old covenant, and there are externals in the new covenant. And there were internals in the old covenant, and there are internals in the new covenant. Um, the issue is not that one was totally external and the other one's internal or that one was only national to one nation um, and this one, is, the New Covenant's only international. We find, for example, there were people in Nineveh who repented and were saved under the ministry of Jonah. We find that there's Rahab who's brought in. Um, the Old Covenant includes Adam, who represented you know the whole of humanity. It includes Noah, and, and we include Abraham. And so Moses, we see that with the national Israel, but but Abraham... You know, he has many nations that came from him. And so what we find is that 
that yes, there is a focus on the nation of Israel, and there was an emphasis there in the Old Covenant, but that there was still justification was by grace alone, through faith alone, through the mediatorial work of Christ alone. In the Old Covenant, through Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And there is an emphasis on the nation of Israel, and there is an emphasis on externals, um, but the New Covenant has externals, and the nations are all to covenant with Christ in the New Covenant. Uh, Well, thank you, Ronald. And uh, we are going to go to our midway break now. Please use this time wisely. Write down as much of the contact information as you possibly can for as many of our advertisers as you possibly can so that you can uh, more frequently respond uh, to our advertisers. And I truly thank God to hear the wonderful news from Pastor David Reese before the show went on the air that a listener or listeners uh, in the Phoenix, Arizona area have begun attending uh, Phoenix, I'm sorry, Puritan Reform Church in Phoenix as a result of listening to this program and hearing uh, Pastor Reese interviewed. So uh, likewise, please write down the information that our advertisers provide so that you can more frequently purchase their products, use the services and visit their churches. But remember, when you can't do any of those, please at least contact our advertisers and say thank you for sponsoring Iron Sharpens Iron Radio. That should go a long way to appease our advertisers and to further ensure them that their money is being wisely spent and that our listeners are being blessed by them keeping us on the air through their financial support. And this reminds me to thank once again, from the bottom of my heart, the fine folks at Puritan Reformed Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and also Armored Republic, for being a part of the advertising family of Iron Trip and Zion Radio that continues our existence. And uh, so uh, write down that contact information and also uh, send in your questions to David Reese, to chrisarnson at gmail.com. chrisarnson at gmail.com. We'll be right back. Puritan Reformed is a Bible-believing, kingdom-building, devil-fighting church. We are devoted to upholding the apostolic doctrine and practice preserved in Scripture alone. Puritan Reformed teaches men to rule and lead as image-bearing prophets, priests, and kings. We teach families to worship together as families. Puritan is committed to teaching the whole counsel of God so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. We sing the Psalms, teach the law, proclaim the gospel, make disciples, maintain discipline, and exalt Christ. This is Pastor David Reese of Puritan Reformed in Phoenix, Arizona. Join us in the glorious cause of advancing Christ's crown and covenant over the kings of the earth. Puritan Reformed Church. Believe. Build. Fight. PuritanPHX.com It's such a blessing to hear from Iron Sharpens Iron radio listeners from all over the world. Here's Joe Riley, a listener in Ireland, who wants you to know about a guest on the show he really loves hearing interviewed, Dr. Joe Moorcraft. I'm Joe Riley, a faithful Iron Sharpens Iron radio listener here in Atoy in County Kildare, Ireland. 
going back to 2005. One of my very favourite guests on Iron Sharpens Iron is Dr. Joe Moorcraft. If you've been blessed by Iron Sharpens Iron Radio, Dr. Moorcraft and Heritage Presbyterian Church of Cumming, Georgia, are largely to thank since they are one of the program's largest financial supporters. Heritage Presbyterian Church of Cumming is in Forsyth County, a part of the Atlanta metropolitan area. Heritage is a thoroughly biblical church, unwaveringly committed to Westminster standards, and Dr. Joe Moorcraft is the author of an eight-volume commentary on the larger catechism. Heritage is a member of the Hanover Presbytery, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and tracing its roots and heritage back to the great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Heritage maintains and follows the biblical truth and principles proclaimed by the reformers. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and God's glory alone. Their primary goal is the worship of the triune God that continues in eternity. For more details on Heritage Presbyterian Church of Cumming, Georgia, visit heritagepresbyterianchurch.com. That's heritagepresbyterianchurch.com. Or call 678-954-7831. That's 678-954-7831. If you visit, tell them Joe Riley, an Iron Sharpens Iron radio listener from a toy in County Kildare, Ireland, sent you. Sharpens Iron Radio first launched in 2005. The publishers of the New American Standard Bible were among my very first sponsors. It gives me joy knowing that many scholars and pastors in the Iron Sharpens Iron Radio audience have been sticking with or switching to the NASB. This is Daryl Bernard Harrison, co-host of the Just Thinking Podcast, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Pastor Tom Buck a First Baptist Church of Lindell, Texas, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Pastor Kent Keller of Faith Bible Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Andrew Rappaport, the founder and executive director at Striving for Eternity Ministries, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Mark Romaldi, pastor of Sovereign Grace Church of Greenbrier, Tennessee, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Christopher Cookston, pastor of Prineville Community Church in Prineville, Oregon, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Matt Tarr, pastor of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. Here's a great way for your church to help keep Iron Sharpens Iron Radio on the air. Pastors, are your pew Bibles tattered and falling apart? Consider restocking your pews with the NASB. And tell the publishers you heard about them from Chris Arnzen on Iron Sharpens Iron Radio. Go to nasbible.com. That's nasbible.com to place your order. Hello, my name is Anthony Uvino, and I'm one of the pastors at Hope Reform Baptist Church in Quorum, New York, and also the host of the ReformRookie.com website. I want you to know that if you enjoy listening to the Iron Sharpens Iron radio show like I do, you can now find it on the Apple's iTunes app by typing Iron Sharpens Iron Radio in the search bar. You no longer have to worry about missing a show or a special guest because you're in your car or still at work. Just subscribe on the iTunes app 
and listen to the Iron Sharpens Iron radio show at any time, day or night. Please be sure to also give it a good review and pass it along to anyone who would benefit from the teaching and the many solidly reformed guests that Chris Arnzen has on the show. Truth is so hard to come by these days, so don't waste your time with fluff or fake news. Subscribe to the Iron Sharpens Iron radio podcast right now. And while you're at it, you can also sign up for the ReformRookie.com podcast and visit our website and the YouTube page. We are dedicated to teaching Christian theology from a Reformed Baptist perspective to beginners in the faith as well as seasoned believers. From Keech's Catechism and the Doctrines of Grace to the Olivet Discourse and the Book of Leviticus, the Reform Rookie podcast and YouTube channel is sure to have something to offer everyone seeking biblical truth. And finally, if you're looking to worship in a Reformed church that holds to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, please join us at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Coram, New York. Again, I'm Pastor Anthony Avenio, and thanks for listening. If you love Iron Sharpens Iron Radio, one of the best ways you can help keep the show on the air is by supporting our advertisers. One such faithful advertiser who really believes in what Chris Arnzen is doing is Daniel P. Patafuco serious injury lawyer and Christian apologist. Dan is the president and founder of the Historical Bible Society. Their mission? To foster belief in the credibility of Scripture as the written Word of God. They go to various churches, schools and institutions to publicly display a rare collection of biblical texts along with a fascinating presentation by Mr. Butterfuco demonstrating the reliability of Scripture. To advance the cause of the gospel, they created a beautiful, perfect facsimile of the genealogy of Jesus Christ from the original engravings contained in a first edition 1611 King James Bible. This 17th century hand-engraved chart shows the family tree of Jesus Christ going back to Adam and Eve. This book is complete with gorgeous full-size illustrations of Noah's Ark, and the Tower of Babel, and an explanation of why the genealogy of Jesus is so important for his claims to the throne of the universe. Originals of this work are in museums, and nobody has ever made it accessible to the public in a large book form before. You can have your own copy of this 44-page genealogy book for a donation of $35 or more. Visit historicalbiblesociety.org. That's historicalbiblesociety.org. Thanks for helping to keep Iron Sharpens Iron Radio on the air. Arnzen here, host of Iron Sharpens Iron Radio. I strongly recommend a church I've been recommending as far back as the 1980s, Grace Covenant Baptist Church in Flemington, New Jersey, pastored by Alan Dunn. Grace Covenant Baptist Church believes it's God's prerogative to determine how he shall be worshipped and how he shall be represented in the world. They believe churches need to turn to the Bible to discover what to include in worship and how to worship God in spirit and truth. 
They endeavor to maintain a God-centered focus and to protect worship from the intrusion of carnal entertainments and distractions. Reading, preaching, and hearing the Word of God, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, baptism, and communion are the scriptural elements of their corporate worship performed with faith, joy, and sobriety. Discover more about Grace Covenant Baptist Church in Flemington, New Jersey at gcbc-nj.org. That's gcbc-nj.org. Or call them at 908-996-7654. That's 908-996-7654. Tell Pastor Dunn you heard about Grace Covenant Baptist Church on Iron Sharpens Iron Radio. Pastor Bill Sasso, Grace Church at Franklin, here in the beautiful state of Tennessee. Our congregation is one of a growing number of churches who love and support Iron Sharpens Iron Radio financially. Grace Church at Franklin is an independent, autonomous body of believers which strives to clearly declare the whole counsel of God as revealed in Scripture through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, the end for which we strive is the glory of God. If you live near Franklin, Tennessee, and Franklin is just south of Nashville, maybe 10 minutes, or you are visiting this area, or you have friends and loved ones nearby, we hope you will join us some Lord's Day in worshiping our God and Savior. Please feel free to contact me if you have more questions about Grace Church at Franklin. Our website is gracechurchatfranklin.org. That's gracechurchatfranklin.org. This is Pastor Bill Sasser wishing you all the richest blessings of our sovereign Lord, God, Savior, and King Jesus Christ today and always. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, Give yourself unto reading. The man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Solid Ground Christian Books is a publisher and book distributor who takes these words of the Prince of Preachers to heart. The mission of Solid Ground Christian Books is to bring back treasures of the past to minister to Christians in the present and future and to publish new titles that address burning issues in the church and the world. Since its beginning in 2001, Solid Ground has been committed to publish God-centered, Christ-exalting books for all ages. We invite you to go treasure hunting at solid-ground-books.com. That's solid-ground-books.com and see what priceless literary gems from the past or present you can unearth from Solid Ground. Solid Ground Christian Books is honored to be a weekly sponsor of Iron Sharpens Iron Radio. And please remember, folks, that solid-ground-books.com is one of our primary, most vital uh, financial supporters. And they are going through a book sales crisis currently. I'm hoping that many of you in my audience will come to the rescue 
And go to solid-ground-books.com today and make a large purchase, as large a purchase as you possibly can without getting your wife upset at you. And uh, remember, when you purchase books from solid-ground-books.com, you're not only going to be doing them a favor by purchasing books from them, and you're not only going to be doing Iron Trip and Zion Radio a favor by keeping one of our most important advertisers happy, you're going to be doing yourself and anyone for whom you are purchasing books from solid-ground-books.com an enormous favor of incalculable value because they bring back into print uh, ancient treasures uh, of Christian literature and also bring into print for the very first time modern works by such authors as Dr. James R. White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. Uh, they bring uh, back into print and publish nothing but the finest in Christian literature so please go to solid-ground-books.com frequently, purchase generously, always mention that you heard about them from Chris Arnson of Iron Trip and Zion Radio. Before I return to my discussion with Pastor David Reese of Puritan Reformed Church in Phoenix, Arizona, on the theme, The Necessity of Covenant Theology, we have uh, some important announcements to make. Uh, folks, if you really love this show and you don't want it to disappear, I'm urging you, please, uh, go to... IronSharpenZionRadio.com, click support, then click, click to donate now. You can donate instantly with a debit or credit card. And if you prefer snail mail, mailing a physical uh, check to a physical address the old-fashioned way from your post office, well, there will also be a physical address that appears on your screen when you click support at IronSharpenZionRadio.com where you can mail your checks made payable to IronSharpenZion Radio. If you want to advertise like my guest, uh, Pastor David Reese does. Uh, he not only advertises his church, Puritan Reformed Church of Phoenix, Arizona, but he also advertises the business where he is a CEO, armoredrepublic.com, on this program. If you would like to join him uh, in being a part of the advertising family here, uh, send me an email to chrisarnson at gmail.com and put advertising in the subject line. As long as whatever it is you desire to promote is compatible with what I believe, I would love to help you launch an ad campaign because we're just as much an urgent need of your advertising dollars as we are in your donations. Uh, also, please remember, I never want a single person in my audience to cut in to the finances that you have set aside to give to your own church where you're a member on the Lord's Day in order to bless Iron Sharp and Zion Radio financially. In other words, never give your own church less money than you normally give them to bless us financially. Also, if you're really struggling to survive and make ends meet, wait until you're back on your feet and more financially stable before you bless us with a financial gift. The Bible is extremely clear that we are primarily to use the money with which he has blessed us, and it's still his money. Uh, we're primarily to use it to provide for our church and our family. Providing for this radio show is obviously not a command of God. But if you love this show, you don't want it to disappear, and you are blessed financially above and beyond your ability to provide for church and family, you have extra money for benevolent, recreational, and trivial purposes, please go to ironsharpenzionradio.com, click support, then click, click to donate now. Last but not least, if you are not a member of a Christ-honoring, biblically faithful, theologically sound, doctrinally solid church like Puritan Reformed Church in Phoenix, Arizona, I have extensive lists spanning the globe of biblically faithful churches and have helped many people all over the world find churches, sometimes even within just a couple of minutes uh, from where they live. In fact, just today, 
I uh, informed a listener who wanted a church in Western Australia about a uh, wonderful Reformed Baptist church plant that my congregation here in Pennsylvania uh, was involved in, Emmanuel Reformed Baptist Church of Perth, Australia. So hopefully somebody's going to be finding a new church home there. But wherever you live, if you don't have a church home that's biblically faithful, send me an email to chrisarnson at gmail.com and put, I need a church in the subject line. That's also where you can send in your questions to Pastor David Reese of Puritan Reformed Church of Phoenix, Arizona, on the necessity of covenant theology. chrisarnson at gmail.com. Give us your first name, at least, city and state and country of residence. Well, now let's go into uh, the segment, which is actually specifically on the theme that we gave this program today, the necessity of covenant theology. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. So basically, if we think about the structures that we just talked through, right, what we talked through was the covenant between the members of the Trinity, the covenant of redemption, as it's commonly called, the covenant of works, which is the covenant between God and Adam, and that makes it so that there's an establishment of guilt for the whole human race except for Christ. And we look at the covenant of grace and how Christ is the second Adam who represents all of the elect and pays for the sins of the elect and provides them with a perfect righteousness. Um, if, we, if we think about that structure, the denial of that structure in terms of minimally the idea that Christ is the second Adam is a denial of the gospel. So when we think about the, the idea of the structure of covenant theology, the very basics that are taught in Romans 5 teaches us that we are all guilty in Adam. He is a covenant representative who represents the whole human race except for Christ, and that Christ is the second Adam who fulfills the law on our behalf, and he pays for our sins on our behalf. And so that basic structure right there, how those those fit, where we're guilty in Adam and we're innocent and righteous in Christ, we need to understand that basic legal structure in order for us to understand at all what it is that, that Christ is doing for us in the gospel, his, his payment for us. So that, that idea is, is really basic to our salvation. And the second thing, it, and we talk about the necessity of covenant theology, when we look at the structure of the scriptures, we have no idea how to deal with the fact that, you know, okay, in, in the Old Testament, we're commanded to to, to, animal, to sacrifice animals. There's, there's all these ceremonies and all that stuff. You have no idea how to deal with these ceremonies without a, a way of looking at the significant points of transition in the Bible. And so the New Covenant, which is so emphasized in Jeremiah and in the book of Ezekiel, this New Covenant that that is the the way in which you know, Christ comes fulfills all the types and shadows and changes this external ceremonies to point to the fact that it's been completed. Right? This, this, this structure helps us to understand how we can now live a life that is pleasing to God, to know what ceremonies were old, what ceremonies are ended, and what's new, and to view how we're supposed to deal with the law as a whole. And so Reformed people historically have dealt with the law of God in terms of three major categories, the moral law, those things that are duties of everybody everywhere and that were written on the heart of Adam 
and that are summarized in the two great commandments to love God and love neighbor, and then further explained in the Ten Commandments, when we, we look at that as the moral law, we understand that the second commandment teaches us how to love God in terms of worship. The second commandment teaches us we're not supposed to use images of God and try to have idols, graven images or, or drawings or whatever of God. We're supposed to use the ceremonies that he's appointed. And so you think about if we took bread and wine and God had not commanded us to use it as a symbol for Christ and of his work, it would be an idol. But the fact that he commands us to use that ceremony is what makes it lawful. And so the external ceremonies, the rituals that we have, are things that we need to know what ceremonies are no longer to be used and which ones are we to use now so we can have right worship. So this covenant theology is basic to the structure of our doctrine. It's also basic in terms of right worship and to know how governance works. When we look at how is it that the church is organized, how was it organized before, and which things continue. We think about that in terms of the other institutions um, and the state. And so as we think about God is the one who institutes the state, he's the one who institutes the church, he institutes the family, and he makes the individual. And so the governance for an individual, a household, a church, or a state is all dependent upon uh, what God has commanded. And so we have to understand when we look at those rules of governance, we have to understand which ones apply to which institutions, and we have to understand are there changes across time. And so when we look at, again, the reform structure of the law, the ways we talked about, you have the moral law, you have the ceremonial law in terms of the ceremonies that are given in the old covenant, and we have new covenant ceremonies. Again, you know, Lord's Supper is a ceremony, um, and baptism is a ceremony. And so those are things that we know we use now, but we're not to, we're not, we're not supposed to invent ceremonies. We use the ones that God has given. And so in addition to that, there's you know, the civil law, which was the rules that were given for how the state of Israel was to be organized and, and, and but it provides for us principles of justice. So, for example, one of the things that you have as an interesting part of the ceremonial, an interesting part of the, the civil law is that there were cities of refuge where if a man committed a crime and he needed to appeal to a higher court, they could go and wait in the city of refuge for a trial. And at the same time, if the high priest died while he was waiting there, he was supposed to be able to go free and to not receive a penalty, which provided a sort of basis for the statute of limitations. Um, and so we find that statute of limitations, we don't have to have somebody dying for the statute of limitations to end for us. We can have a, a time period after after a crime. But it gives us a principle that there's is an orderly way to deal with things like statutes of limitations. On the other side, we don't know what a crime is or what a just penalty would be apart from God telling us in his word. And so we have principles for administration and for the efficient running of government and avoiding tyranny and over-centralization. We also have principles to know what a crime is and what a just penalty is. So the civil law has elements that are particular to Israel in terms of the geography of Israel and things that are peculiar to it and also technological things, but it does give to us principles of justice. And so covenant theology provides us an understanding of the fact that that was a particular nation but it also is given to us as an example for our teaching with other nations. And so the structure of the law in terms of the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law gives us a way of looking at the structure of Scripture in terms of when things change and how they affect us. And so one of the great things in terms of the 
ceremonial laws, one of the interesting elements there is that you find in Leviticus 17 and 18, there are these rules that applied not only to the Israelites, but even to strangers in the land. And Acts 15 provides us with a list of four categories of law that were from the ceremonial law that don't only apply to Jews, but they even applied to Gentiles. And those, they're found in Leviticus 17 and 18. And they have to do with, for example, not eating blood, which was a commandment given to Noah. They have to do with the idea of, of not eating animals and, that are designed in such a way as to not have the blood spilled out. So if you butchered an animal and kept all its blood in it so you could eat it, sort of vampirism, because the blood is a symbol for life. Thirdly, you find we're not supposed to have things that are polluted by idols. So you don't want to take things that are a part of idolatry or polluted by it or associated with it and to consume it. And then fourthly, there was this rule to not participate in sexual immorality. And the sexual immorality that's being referred to there is the special rules that were instituted, again, in Leviticus 18. We find what are called the rules of consanguinity and affinity. Consanguinity means with blood, and affinity has to do with a connection in terms of marriage. So with blood would be like, you know, what level of relative are you forbidden from marrying? And how close of a relative could you marry? Can you marry your fourth cousin? You know, And so the idea of how close or how far of a relative away is something that's defined for us in that set of laws, and it's a part of the ceremonial laws. And we find, for example, that, that the descendants of Adam and Eve initially were marrying siblings, and it was lawful until the institution of God giving in the Levitical law there a place where we know what level of person by blood we cannot marry. And then there's also, again, the application of that in marriage so that the in-law, you cannot marry as close as you could not marry somebody related by blood. And so we find those those rules, those are examples of, of ceremonial laws that carry over. So this interpretive structure to know which laws are applicable to us is extremely important. And we find these as the theological structures that we see even from the Apostle Paul, who takes, for example, the idea that um, in 1 Corinthians, you find a man was disciplined for breaking this by, for example, taking to himself a woman who had previously been a, a stepmother, a person who had been married to his father. So the rules of affinity are being applied there. So we find these kinds of things being dealt with. So the structure of law is is found in and rooted in how we understand these covenants. So covenant theology is necessary for us to get the gospel where Christ is our representative, and it's necessary for us to understand the law structure for how we should live now as Christians. And so it resolves for us many confusions. I find so often that people don't understand how to deal with the law, and they don't understand the way of salvation in a coherent way that makes the Bible make sense. So many people, like the listener who called in earlier or asked earlier, think, oh, the Old Testament taught that people were saved by works, and now people are saved by grace. And that is simply not the case. There is a structure that goes back all the way to Adam, that people were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the mediatorial work of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Christ bringing in the new covenant, as was promised in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37. And uh, let's uh, remember that the listener who sent in the question about that was in agreement with you. He was wanted you to confirm that that was heresy to believe that we were, or that men were saved by obedience in the covenant of works. Absolutely. Thank you for correcting me. Sorry about that. No, that's all right. <laughs> Uh, well, let's take a couple of questions before we go to the final break. And, uh, we have Janice in Evergreen, Idaho. And Janice said, 
I believe earlier on you said something about the covenant of marriage, and a lot of things have been said about that lately in light of the scandal that erupted from Alistair Begg giving absolutely ridiculous advice to a Christian grandmother to attend a transgendered wedding so-called. Some of the defenders of Alistair are rebuking Christians for being inconsistent because they will attend a marriage between two unbelievers. But is not even a marriage of two unbelievers a binding covenant of God, regardless of whether or not they believe in him? Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, It is the historic doctrine of Rome that uh, marriage is a sacrament and it is only valid when administered by the church, specifically the papal dominion. Um, and they will they will try to teach that civil marriages are illegitimate and marriages between unbelievers or between um, a believer with an unbeliever if the if the unbeliever isn't given some sort of a, a dispensation by Rome to marry the believer then that they're unless they agree to, to go through the Romanist uh, sacramental version uh, that it's invalid so anyways yes that, that's that's an error so Protestantism and the Bible plainly teach that Marriage between unbelievers is valid. Marriage between a believer and an unbeliever is valid. Marriage between believers is valid. Now, believers ought only to marry a fellow believer. But the the idea of what our duties are in terms of what we should do is not the same thing as what a valid covenant is. And so we are obligated to do everything perfectly all the time, but there are some things, even when we sin in the process, that are still valid. And so it's not it's not sin to watch unbelievers enter into a covenant and to hold them responsible for that covenant. Um, and it is also the case that covenants can be valid and binding and obligatory, even if the persons who are in them are unbelievers. So it's an illegitimate argument. God establishes the validity of marriage, and the validity of marriage includes the validity of marriages between unbelievers or a believer and an unbeliever. Okay, uh, thank you uh, very much for that excellent question. And uh, we have, let's see here, um, we have ruble, just like the Russian money, ruble in Crystal, North Dakota. And uh, ruble says, I don't want to cause any tension between you and the guest of the show. <laughs> but it seems to me that the Reformed Baptist understanding of covenant theology is that only the elect of God are truly in the covenant, and that many, perhaps not all, paedo-baptists believe that even the non-elect are truly in the covenant, which is why they can be removed from it. I was wondering if you think that's an adequate or accurate description and where exactly do you stand on those issues so i'd be interested in your thoughts on that brother but i just a really quick version of my answer would be i think that that anybody who is in the visible church is visibly in the covenant in the sense that they will suffer greater curse if they reject it if they're reprobate um, and they'll receive greater blessing if they're elect. So a person who's baptized will either receive greater blessing or greater curse depending on on the, whether they are chosen or not, whether or not they're an object of grace or wrath. Um, and, and so 
the covenant, not everybody who's externally in the covenant internally has the covenant written on their heart. Furthermore, not everybody who has the covenant internally written on their heart is someone who externally receives the signs of the covenant. So there's salvation outside of those who are baptized. There's salvation um, in baptism. Most people who are saved are baptized. And there are many who are baptized who are not saved. Um, and so I think that, that language of being in the covenant externally and being in the covenant internally is a useful thing. And I think you would agree there's greater blessing and cursing um, based upon whether a person is baptized or not. And so a false professor, for example, who's baptized, I think you would agree that there's greater curse on them for the rejection of Christ. But yeah, yeah. I'd be really interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I agree with that. Although uh, from my years as a Reformed Baptist, I was thankfully saved in a Reformed Baptist church. I didn't have to get uh, uh, I didn't have to get de-brainwashed, if that's a word, from <laughs> other like false theologies and so on, with, with, which exist within modern evangelicalism. But uh, I have always heard that uh, just like the listener Rubel said that only the elect are truly in the covenant but there are false members of churches and if they are revealed to be charlatans they are to be removed Uh, they are to be excommunicated until they demonstrate genuine repentance but uh, from what I know and there may be Reformed Baptists who even disagree with the way I'm explaining this but uh, from what I have been always uh, taught and said, that uh, there, there, there is only the elect in the covenant of Christ, uh, and therefore anybody else is just a false or charlatan uh, member of a local congregation. Everybody else that's not truly of the elect, I mean. <clears throat> But uh, Brother, would you would you agree that there's a false covenanting that occurs when a person is, uh, you know, is is baptized hypocritically? Oh, yeah. But I wouldn't say that they were truly in the covenant. Uh, okay, but, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I was just going to say that I have met and had conversations with Presbyterians who believe that a baby of believers is truly uh, a member of the covenant after their baptism, but that child obviously is not necessarily of the elect because we don't breed the elect. God chooses before the foundation of the Lord of the world who is the elect, and therefore Christians cannot assume that their babies are definitely of the elect and therefore you know members of the covenant. Sure. So, and I think, think you, I, I imagine you would agree that in some way the children of the old covenant that received circumcision as a symbol of the covenant, that there was some way in which they were in the covenant in terms of a visible way. They brought greater responsibility to them, but that not all of them were elect. I mean, obviously, right, not all right. of them were elect. Yeah, I know. So, that's why I believe that this is a new and better covenant. That was a, uh, a covenant with Israel. And therefore, you had people who were truly in the covenant that were uh, not circumcised of the heart uh, that were in the covenant. But in the new covenant, I believe only those that are circumcised of the heart are in the new covenant. Okay, and so, and I would, and I would say that there's an external presence in the covenant, and there's an internal 
presence. And so those who are externally, they just have a greater, they have a greater responsibility and they have a greater blessing if they are, uh, you know, converted and, and, and they have a greater cursing if they're not. Um, and I think you would, you would agree with that, but not necessarily if they're in the covenant in some ways. I'm not really sure how you would talk about the covenanting act of, of baptism, but I think hopefully that lays there, uh, you know, kind of how I would, I would view those in terms of the internal and external. Yes, and uh, that is why, even though we have different views, they're not monumental enough uh, to not have fellowship. And confessional Reformed Baptists and confessional Presbyterians have frequent fellowship and even pulpit exchange, and they're on the same panels very often at conferences and and co-author books together. And so uh, I, I don't find the, the difference so monumental that we have to disfellowship one another over the differences yeah so institutionally it's different we couldn't obviously have the same church because we can't acknowledge the same membership right right but but we can say we have the same gospel we can we can uh, say that we have overwhelming agreement about applications of you know what the law of god would teach and then i think we should we it's good for us to have as you and i have just had a brotherly you know argument with each other right here um, and seeking to understand each other's positions. I think it's very important that Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians really argue about this and seek to understand each other because that's how we're going to come to see who's wrong, right? Either <laughs> I'm idolatry, right? Either I'm idolatrously uh, uh, baptizing babies when God has not commanded it, or you know, a Baptist church is disobedience, not fulfilling some, some requirement that, that the Lord has given. Right. And so it's really important that we come to figure out who needs to repent there um, and that occurs through that debate. And so uh, it's such a wonderful thing to be able to engage in the discussions of those things as we you know, seek to uh, share the same gospel and to seek to uh, engage in seeing the truths that we share advanced. Um, and I think the gospel and scripture authority are such a central marker for that. And so I'm so grateful that you and I uh, share in, um, you know, in, in the same gospel. Amen. And the show's over now, folks. So no, I'm only kidding. <laughs> and don't go away folks because we are coming back after our final break and uh if you haven't already sent in your questions send it in now because we'll be out of time before you know it send it to chris arms and at gmail.com always give us your first name at least city and state and country of residence and only remain anonymous if it's about a personal and private matter like you disagree with your own pastors over something uh, or you're even a pastor who disagrees with your fellow elders or denomination. We understand reasons like that would compel you to remain anonymous. But if it's a general question, please, first name, city, and state, and country of residence. We'll be right back. Please do not go away. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries here. If you've watched my Dividing Line webcast often enough, you know I have a great love for getting Bibles and other documents vital to my ministry rebound to preserve and ensure their longevity. And besides that, they feel so good. I'm so delighted I discovered Post Tenebris Lux Bible Rebinding. No radio ad will be long enough to sing their praises sufficiently, but I'll give it a shot. Jeffrey Rice of Post Tenebris Lux is a remarkably gifted craftsman and artisan. All his work is done by hand from the cutting to the pleating of corners to the perimeter stitching. Jeffrey uses the finest in buttery soft imported leathers in a wide variety of gorgeous colors like the turquoise goat skin tanned in Italy used for my Nessie All in 28th edition with a navy blue goat skin inside liner and the electric blue goat skin from a French tannery used to rebind a Reformation study Bible I used as a gift. 
The silver gilding he added on the page edges has a stunning mirror finish resembling highly polished chrome. Jeffrey will customize your rebinding to your specifications and even emboss your logo into the leather, making whatever he rebinds a one-of-a-kind work of art. For more details on post-Tenebrous Lux Bible Rebinding, go to ptlbiblerebinding.com. That's ptlbiblerebinding.com. President of the SecureCom Group and an enthusiastic supporter of Chris Arnzen's Iron Sharpens Iron radio program. The SecureCom Group provides the highest level of security, closed-circuit television, access control, and communication systems for Manhattan's top residential buildings, as well as churches, commercial properties, municipalities, and more. We custom install exactly what you need to protect yourself, including digital recording, off-site viewing, and connectivity from most smart devices. From simple code-activated systems to the latest technology using facial recognition, the SecureCom Group has it. We also provide the latest in intercom and IP telephone systems. In addition, we provide superior networking platforms. We'll create, maintain, and secure your local network. Whether it's a Wi-Fi or hardwire network, we'll implement the latest secured firewall, endpoint solutions, and cloud backup. I would love to have the honor and privilege of helping protect the lives and property of Iron Sharpens Iron radio listeners and their associates. For more details on how the SecureCom Group may be of service to you with the very latest in security innovations, call 718-353-3355. That's 718-353-3355. Or visit securecomgroup.com. That's securecomgroup.com. This is Brian McLaughlin of the SecureCom Group, joining Chris Arnzen's family of advertisers to keep Iron Sharpens Iron Radio on the air. Armored Republic exists to equip free men with tools of liberty to defend God-given rights against the twin threats of tyranny and chaos. If you own a rifle to resist tyrants and criminals, then you should own body armor and a med kit for the same reasons. A rifle stops evil, body armor and a med kit keep you in the fight. And preserve your life. Armored Republic is a body of free craftsmen united to create tools of liberty. We are honored to be your armorsmith of choice. Civilian ownership of body armor is about increasing decentralized power and by comparison, reducing the advantages of centralized power. The danger of centralized power is often represented by the word king. As Americans, we hate the word king applied to any mere man. We are Armored Republic. And in a republic, there is no king but Christ. Arm yourself with tools of liberty at armoredrepublic.com. I'm Dr. Joseph Piper, President Emeritus and Professor of Systematic and Applied Theology at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Every Christian who's serious about the Reformed faith and the Westminster Standards should have and use the eight-volume commentary on the theology and ethics of the Westminster Larger Catechism titled Authentic Christianity by Dr. Joseph Moorcraft. 
It is much more than an exposition of the larger catechism. It is a thoroughly researched work that utilizes biblical exegesis as well as historical and systematic theology. Dr. Moorcraft is pastor of Heritage Presbyterian Church of Cumming, Georgia, and I urge everyone looking for a biblically faithful church in that area to visit that fine congregation. For details on the eight-volume commentary, go to westminstercommentary.com, westminstercommentary.com. For details on Heritage Presbyterian Church of Cumming, Georgia, visit heritagepresbyterianchurch.com, heritagepresbyterianchurch.com. Please tell Dr. Moorcraft and the saints at Heritage Presbyterian Church of Cumming, Georgia, that Dr. Joseph Piper of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary sent you. When Iron Sharpens Iron Radio first launched in 2005, the publishers of the New American Standard Bible were among my very first sponsors. It gives me joy knowing that many scholars and pastors in the Iron Sharpens Iron Radio audience have been sticking with or switching to the NASB. I'm Dr. Joe Moorcraft, pastor of Heritage Presbyterian Church in Cumming, Georgia, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Anthony Uvino, founder of TheReformRookie.com and co-founder of New York Apologetics, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Pastor Tim Bushong of Syracuse Baptist Church in Syracuse, Indiana, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Eli Ayala, founder of Revealed Apologetics and staff member with the Historical Bible Society, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Pastor Josh Miller of Grace Bible Fellowship Church in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Joe Bianchi, president of Calvary Press Publishing in Greenville, South Carolina, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. I'm Pastor Jake Korn of Switzerland Community Church in Switzerland, Florida, and the NASB is my Bible of choice. Here's a great way for your church to help keep Iron Sharpens Iron Radio on the air. Pastors, are your pew Bibles tattered and falling apart? Consider restocking your pews with the NASB. And tell the publishers you heard about them from Chris Arnzen on Iron Sharpens Iron Radio. Go to nasbible.com. That's nasbible.com to place your order. Keith Allen of Lindbrook Baptist Church, a Christ-centered, gospel-driven church looking to spread the gospel in the southwest portion of Long Island, New York, and play our role in fulfilling the Great Commission, supporting and sending for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're delighted to be a part of Chris Arnzen's Iron Sharpens Iron Radio advertising family. At Lindbrook Baptist Church, we believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the inspired word of God inerrant in the original writings, complete as the revelation of God's will for salvation, and the supreme and final authority in all matters to which they speak. We believe in salvation by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. This salvation is based upon the sovereign grace of God, was purchased by Christ on the cross, and is received through faith alone, apart from any human merit, works, or ritual. 
Salvation in Christ also results in righteous living, good works, and appropriate respect and concern for all who bear God's image. If you live near Lynbrook, Long Island, or if you're just passing through on the Lord's Day, we'd love to have you come and join us in worship. For details, visit lynbrookbaptist.org. That's L-Y-N brookbaptist.org. This is Pastor Keith Allen of Lynbrook Baptist Church reminding you that by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Lord bless you in the knowledge of himself. And I want to thank Lindbrook Baptist Church of Lindbrook, Long Island, for just last week giving us the phenomenal news that they have renewed their advertising contract with Iron Sharp and Zion Radio. So thank you so much, Elder Sal D'Antona and Pastor Keith Allen, for believing in what I do here on Iron Sharp and Zion Radio so much that you share the money with which God has blessed you with Iron Sharp and Zion Radio. God bless you all. And uh, also, folks, I want to remind you that this program is being paid for in part by the law firm of Buttafuoco and Associates. If you are the victim of a serious injury or medical malpractice, please call Dan Buttafuoco at 1-800-NOW-HURT, 1-800-NOW-HURT, or visit 1-800-NOW-HURT.com. Please mention Iron Sharp and Zion Radio when you contact them. And last but not least, if you are a man in ministry leadership, we invite you to the next Iron Sharp and Zion Radio Free Pastors Luncheon, Thursday, June the 6th, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Church of the Living Christ in Loysville, Pennsylvania. For the very first time, we are featuring Dr. Joel Beakey, president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, as our guest speaker. It's absolutely free, and everyone attending gets a free, heavy sack of brand new books, personally selected by me and donated by Christian publishers all over the United States and United Kingdom. If you want to register for free, send me an email to chrisarnson at gmail.com and put Pastor's Luncheon in the subject line. We're now back with my guest today, Pastor David Reese of Puritan Reformed Theological, I'm sorry, <laughs> a Puritan Reformed Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Almost gave the uh, Dr. Beakey Seminary name there. <clears throat> and uh, we are if, if you have the power if you have the power to grant title to it i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> and we're discussing the necessity of covenant theology and before i take any of uh my listener questions that are left i just wanted to ask you uh because of our little chat before about our differences on covenant theology uh if you could exegete hebrews 7 verse 25 Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And would you believe that as a promise for everyone in the covenant as a Baptist would or just for the elect? That's Hebrews 7, what again? 25, you said? Yes. Um. So I would say that... Um, Obviously, his capability in terms of you know, the idea of being able to save to the other most is, is, is something that he has uh, in terms of anybody, but he obviously effectively only does it for the elect. Um, and so his intercession um, is, is, only for, is only for the elect. Um, he, he is only seeking uh, to, you know, to bring about the good of the elect. 
Um, and so I would say that when we, we talk about um, the book of Hebrews, you're going to find like the famous apostasy passage in, uh, in, in, uh, in chapter six, or you're going to have, um, you know, the promises that get laid out um, and you're going to have uh, those in you know, the promises of the, of the new covenant in chapter eight. And I'm going to have differences there, but I think when we come to this one, uh, verse 25, chapter seven, verse 25, um, you know, Christ saves to the uttermost um, those who come to him, come to God through him. And that's obviously only talking about the elect um, and his intercession is only for the elect. So sorry, I muddled through that, but I, how, how have you heard that interpreted previously by, by Presbyterians? I have uh, heard some Presbyterians say that Christ mediates even uh, with the non-elect in the covenant. He mediates wrath, and I just don't understand that how, how somebody can come to that conclusion. Obviously, I'm a Baptist, so I wouldn't come to that conclusion. But uh, I don't know if you've heard that as well. So I, I have no problem saying that Christ mediates uh, wrath uh, to the reprobate, uh, and I, I don't have a problem with that. For example, I think he, as a king, right? He Christ has two kingships. He has he has a kingship in terms of his eternal divinity, but he also is a the mediatorial king receiving the throne of David um, at, at the right hand of the Father. And so, as the mediatorial king, for example, I think Psalm two would teach um, that the mediatorial kingship of Christ he mediates wrath. Um, and so I think that there is a way in which in which Christ, um, in his kingship as on the throne of David, um, very specifically, both administers and mediates uh, wrath there. Um, and I would say as a high priest, he even uh, brings imprecations on uh, on the the reprobate, like he would he would pray curse on them. Um, and then I would say as a prophet, he brings oracles of woe on them. So I would say in the mediatorial office of Christ and in the three offices of prophet, priest, king, there are ways in which he brings wrath by that mediatorial office. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would agree that he mediates wrath, but not for anybody in the covenant. That's that's the only uh, way I would. Got it. I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm. I'm, it took me a second to figure. I, I get what you're saying. So, and then I and I and you understand what I would say. There is obviously the the idea that that um, there is a a way in which there's a bringing of greater curse and therefore wrath on those who receive the externals of the covenant but are not actually elect. And, and I and I think again, I think you would agree with that. You just wouldn't agree they're in the covenant. You would say somebody who's wrongly baptized or falsely baptized right. or wrongly takes the Lord's Supper, they're receiving greater wrath, greater curse yes. in that. You just, you're just just not willing to say that they're in the covenant. Right. Um, how would you, but you, you... So you agree it's a covenanting act. And so I'm curious, if there's a covenanting act there, even if they do it wrong, is there some way in which you would think that they covenant with God? Uh, well, I guess if you want to use that way of phrasing it covenant with god like for instance two lost people getting married who maybe even though not all lost people consciously are making a covenant with god there are some that proclaim that um in fact i would imagine in some way most lost people who get married in any church or house of worship 
even if it's a false religion. They are making a public statement that they're making a covenant with God. Uh, and in that case, as we said earlier, it is a binding marriage uh, between one man and one woman. <clears throat> in other words, when people get saved, they don't have to get remarried, uh, obviously, because th that's just not a requirement in the scriptures. But uh, I just think that the the rebirth is a different story. Um, and uh, I believe that all who are truly in the covenant are the elect and those that appear to be to the outside world are uh, merely uh, charlatans or they're not necessarily conscious charlatans. They may be just lost people who are unaware of their state as unaware self-deceived. Yes. As unaware as somebody possibly could be in light of Romans one, uh, because obviously we believe that there's no true atheist, for instance, um, but uh, uh, that's about uh, all I can think of saying right now on that issue. But as, yeah. as far as before we go to any final listener question, did you want to conclude with anything else as far as what you intended to say about your theme today, the necessity of covenant theology? So, yeah, th thank you for that opportunity. I, I think uh, in regards to the general points that I want to make sure that people walk away with, I want to make sure that people remember that there are three major covenants that govern the structure of how we think about history and how the Bible is organized. And that's the covenant that exists between the members of the Trinity, the intra-Trinitarian covenant, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where their roles uh, in uh, in terms of how they carry out creation and redemption occurs. Um, then uh, also the, the covenant of works between God and Adam is the basis of our guilt the covenant between uh, uh, the covenant between God and Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, called the covenant of grace, is that whereby we have salvation, where we have the death of the second Adam to pay for our sins. I want to make sure that people think about the fact that there's a transition across time, even with giving of Adam the covenant of grace. Then there's also a building on that with Noah, a building on that with Abraham, a building on that with Moses, a building on that with David, and that the new covenant, which is that same covenant of grace with a change of the outward forms, is given in uh, what was promised in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37. And then the Lord Jesus Christ comes and gives us the signs of the new covenant um, in the Lord's Supper being, for example, called, you know, we have the the the, the cup being called the, the the blood of the new covenant or the symbol for the blood of the new covenant. And so I want to emphasize those things. And just to get a parting shot at you, friend, I want to say that there's a way in which uh, circumcision as a sign of the covenant is something where people were in the covenant, but they were not savingly in the covenant, but it simply brought greater curse on those. So I you disagree and you probably don't have time to respond. So, ha, sorry. <laughs> Uh, let's go to uh, another listener question. Uh, let's see here. We have Kimmy in Aquabog, Long Island, New York. And Kimmy says, since you have titled the theme of the show, The Necessity of Covenant Theology, are you claiming that dispensationalists and others are not saved? So if a person ultimately denies that Adam represents them and they have a basis of, of guilt there and they deny that Christ is the second Adam, 
um, and covenantally represents them to uh, pay for their sins and to provide them with righteousness uh, that is not their own, then I would say that they're not saved. If, however, you have those elements in your theology and you think that there's somehow in which you call yourself a dispensationalist and that the covenant is, you know, there's one way of salvation throughout history here, then okay, that's not a, that's not a problem. Um, and I think many people who call themselves dispensationalists are willing to agree with that basics, those basics of, of the Romans five, you know, the first Adam and the second Adam. Um, and so, but I think that there are some dispensationalists, people that would call themselves dispensationalists that are, uh, that want to say that there's a bunch of different ways of salvation. Yes. Some of the footnotes, you know, and, and stuff like that. And so I think that that's, that's heretical. Yeah. And that would be a tiny fragment, uh, from my experience anyway. Um, there are even, uh, amongst that tiny minority of dispensationalists who claim that salvation is through obedience and martyrdom during the tribulation uh, and things like that. They have different gospels, it would seem. But but that is not what I have heard. Like, as I've repeated uh, many times in this show, one of my modern-day heroes is John MacArthur. And uh, I disagree with John on eschatology and on dispensational theology, but I agree with him on far more than those things over which I disagree with him. And and uh, I, I have no problem having fellowship with dispensationalists as long as they don't harp on or hobby horse uh, their differences, especially with eschatology. I couldn't tolerate, for instance, joining a church where every week they were beating the drum on their unique understanding of pre-tribulational and premillennial rapture and so on. Uh, but uh, I think that most of them would be in in the majority in agreement with things that you said today. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and I think that the, you know, a lot of people who call themselves dispensationalists are, are very modified from mm-hmm. what you might read um, in some of the older, older yeah. forms. And a lot of them have even kind of come to a place where you might call people talk about new covenant theology, where they'll talk about three structures, rather talk about the covenant of works, their covenant of grace in the, or the, or the old covenant and of the new covenant, which is sort of a, They'll say it's a different structure um, or whatever, but they'll still see, teach that those two covenants, you know, the old and new, even though they're not one unified covenant, they'll teach that they still have justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. I think they're wrong in trying to separate them and make them not the same covenant, but they're 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 trying to make them so that they both end up pointing to Christ or whatever. So you, you have all these modifications um, and kind of uh, variations on it, but I think that the confessional standards that lay out these, I think that the that the Westminster Confession does an excellent job on it. Um, and I think that you find there's a lot of overlap in terms of how the London Baptist Confession, for example, talks about it. And I think that the idea of the relationship of the visible church with being in the covenant is going to be the major point of, of disagreement, right? A Baptist is going to say being the visible church doesn't constitute being in the covenant. A Presbyterian is going to say being in the visible church does constitute being in the covenant, but that doesn't mean that you're savingly in it. And so those 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 choices of language, the differences between London Baptist Confession and Westminster Confession are much smaller than a lot of those other variations. And my hope is that we will find uh, a growth in unity through much discussion as people seek to debate these things. Amen. Well, I don't want our listeners to forget that the website for Puritan Reformed Church of Phoenix, Arizona is Puritan, P-H-X, the abbreviation for Phoenix, dot com. 
PuritanPHX.com. And don't forget about the website for the wonderful business uh, that my guest, uh, David Reese, uh, where my guest uh, serves as the CEO. That's ArmoredRepublic.com, ArmoredRepublic.com. Pastor David Reese, I am so thrilled that you are a regularly featured guest on this program. I can't wait till you return, and I know it's coming up in the very near future. I always enjoy every minute of our discussions. I want to thank everybody who listened today. I hope that you all have a very safe and uh, healthy and God-glorifying and Christ-honoring weekend and Lord's Day. And I want you all to always remember for the rest of your lives that Jesus Christ is a far greater Savior than you are a sinner.